Good morning. Let me tell you a secret. It's probably not a big secret. Some of you probably know this. I really love my wife and my family. And I enjoy doing fun, encouraging. I enjoy blessing them. I enjoy their smiles. Not much gives me more joy than doing something surprising for them. You could say, I spoil them. I can't do as much as I wish I could, but I would do, it's just fun. And yet there's a tension there, because you know the expression, spoiled rotten. You know the expression, spoiled brat. And so there is tension in that relationship, and um, I won't tell you which one of them I've had to say this to, but I've said, it's okay for me to spoil you up until the point you start acting spoiled. Can you feel that tension? I can feel that tension. God is like that with us. Are we blessed? Does God enjoy blessing us? Giving us spiritual blessings? Does he lavish them on us in Christ? He does. If we thought for a moment here at Heather Hills, just in our church family, not just uh, spiritually, but here, warm, building, great friendships, history of ministry, productive ministries, great teachers, we're spoiled, aren't we? We don't want to act spoiled. Even beyond that, things that are more important, thinking about the love of Christ adopted into the family of God, baptized into Christ, the seal of the Spirit, a home in heaven, the Word of God richly feeding us regularly, the Spirit living in us. Aren't we spoiled? We really are. And I think... That's important for us to think about as we approach this message. Just a little introduction there. Because I'm going to, if you didn't realize based on the uh, text we just read, we only have to cover about 100 years of history of the nation of Israel today in 37 and a half minutes. So we, we, we're doing okay here. Um, so I'm going to give you a little quick summary that I've written. But could you think about living your life in a different time? In a different setting? Could you think waking up this morning and thinking, oh good, nomads didn't come pillaging through the camp, we're still alive. But also thinking, wow, it did snow a little. I I didn't sleep real good. My tent didn't have a heater. (laughs) And so because it was cold, I was colder. Are the kids okay? Nope, no snakes or scorpions. Uh got into the camp, they're still alive. I wonder if we'll find food or water today. Can you just feel the difference between how absolutely pampered we are? And so my fear is, and Paul's fear, is that we would not fall into that camp of being so blessed by God that we accidentally become spoiled. That's the message I want to share with you this morning. 
Well, it is a lot of history, so bear with me. In order to set this up, I have tried to condense 100 years of Israel's history here, essentially, to about four and a half minutes of a summary. So listen as I read some notes here. We're looking today at the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. And here in chapter 10, Paul has a warning for the Corinthians. These Corinthians were pretty impressed with themselves. They thought they knew everything they needed to know about being a follower of God because they'd been rescued by God. They began to think it didn't really matter how they lived their lives. Spoiled. They weren't living as followers of Jesus. They weren't trusting and obeying God. So God gives them a warning. He tells them to remember what happened to the Israelites in the past. And so today we'll take a look back in the story of the Bible to remember exactly what happened to the Israelites. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Israelites are living as slaves. Slaves in the land of Egypt. They cry out to God to rescue them, and God hears them. And God sends Moses and ten amazing plagues until Pharaoh finally lets God's people go. And God leads them out of Egypt using a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when they got to the Red Sea, the Egyptian army was chasing them down. And God splits the sea and allows the Israelites to walk through on dry land, safely, into the wilderness. In fact, the title of my message this morning is Warnings from the Wilderness. While they were walking through the desert, they became hungry, started grumbling. They would cry out to God and say, God, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? It would have been much Better there. And God was still kind to them. God God sent special food every day. A special sweet bread called manna. And he made water come out of a rock in the desert so that the Israelites would have water to drink. Thank you for allowing me to go to Israel this last summer. We would get off the tour bus and walk to the edge of the wilderness and stand there for about seven or eight minutes while someone instructed us. And I could hear my wife. She would never say it, but I could hear the word, hot. (laughs) She doesn't like being hot. It's hot. Can we get back on the bus? Where's my ice water? If I I know firsthand what it means to need water (laughs) in wilderness, it's dire. But still, even though God had been very kind to the Israelites, even though he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, gave them everything they needed, still the Israelites failed to trust God. Eventually they make it to Mount Sinai. And while Moses is up on the mountain talking to God, the Israelites become impatient and they decide to make their own pretend God. They melted down all their gold jewelry And it was shaped into the form of a golden calf. People danced around and bowed down to the pretend God. God was very angry with his people. 
3,000 people died that day because they failed to trust God. Eventually, the Israelites arrive at the land that God had promised. And the Israelites send 12 men in to spy out the land. And after 40 days of spying, and it was all over, they come back and they report the land is amazing. It has all the food and water that we would ever want. And two men, Joshua and Caleb, trusted God. And they said, we should certainly go in and take the land that God has promised to us. But the other ten spies said, no. The people are too big. The people are too scary. The people are too formidable. Their weaponry too advanced. And so once again, you know what I'm going to say. The Israelites do not trust God. Again, they begin to complain. And they said, if only we had stayed in Egypt. Why did God bring us out of Egypt here to be killed by the giants? And once again, they failed to trust God. And so God made a promise that not one of them would enter the land that he had promised to them except for Joshua and Caleb, who had trusted God. They would be the only ones who would enter into the land that God had promised. So again, the Israelites wandered into the desert, and every one of them died in the desert except for Joshua and Caleb, who had trusted God, and they would be the only ones who would enter the land. You see, friends, God rescued the Israelites from slavery. He did amazing things to take care of them. And still, again and again and again and again, they failed to trust God. But it's even worse than that. They also worshipped pretend gods. And so in the end, they missed out on God's promised land. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 11, Paul says this, These things were written down for us as examples. These things were written down for us as warnings. Can you see? It's Paul warning the Corinthians to be very careful even though they'd been rescued by Jesus, they'd had their sins forgiven, they needed still to be very vigilant to make sure that they were living their lives as followers of God. They needed to make sure that they weren't worshiping pretend gods, that they were really living their lives as true followers of Jesus. Because if they didn't, they were at risk. Risk of missing out on all the good things God had promised them. So that's the background for this. We'll pick at that a little bit with the specific examples that Paul uses as we study the text this morning. Well, what was Paul, if I were going to sum it up in a quick sentence, what was Paul trying to say to the Corinthians so we can have a real good handle on it? Paul applied these Old Testament examples of Israel's idolatry to the Corinthian situation, warning them against idolatry and giving them practical instructions about how not to stumble themselves or cause others to stumble. My simple thought for you this morning would be this. Don't assume that you could not be disqualified from the race. Don't assume that you, that you could not be disqualified from the race. 
Don't think you're above it. All right, let's begin. Let me read verses 1 through 5 again for us. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Anyone notice something Paul's trying to emphasize there? I tried to bring it out in my reading. The word all, do you see it there again and again and again and again? Emphasizing the pervasiveness and the intensity of the blessings of God to people. Paul and Pastor Brian's message last week had just used analogies from racing and boxing to demonstrate that Christians need to be vigilant in living the Christian life. And now Paul offers Old Testament support, proofs for what he had just taught. Now what we're seeing here are what Bible theologians would call types. A type is a word that a biblical theologian would use, an Old Testament event that points forward to a New Testament spiritual reality. And Paul applies these Old Testament passages and and shows us some experiences here. So let me talk to you about that. So we have this type, this picture of Israel in the wilderness. And that is picturing who? Christians in Corinth. Paul says these are similar things. They were baptized into Moses. We are baptized into Christ. They received manna and water in the wilderness. We have received the Lord's Supper, bread and wine. Israel, under the old covenant, was experiencing Christ's presence in veiled ways, in mysterious ways, in ways that were, were pointing to something greater. We, the church, under the new covenant, experience Christ's presence personally in a much superior way. Do you understand that? The pictures? Let's talk about that just a little more. Paul says he's afraid. Brothers, I do not want you to be unaware he, he was afraid that the Corinthians were not taught of the lessons of the Old Testament. They didn't understand it, the lessons history had for them. So Paul elaborates on these dangers and draws these comparisons between the Corinthian Christian experiences and the wilderness wanderings of Israel. The Israelites were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. All the Israelites, young and old, Male and female, faithful and unfaithful, were baptized into Moses this way. It kind of reminds me of John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That doesn't mean that everyone receives the gift of salvation through Christ. All, 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 all. God's blessings are for all. I have a friend who I'm, uh, I'm, you know, is just struggling a little bit uh, in their spirit and as we sang that song this morning this is my father's world why should my heart be sad i just texted that to them the blessings and love of god are are all 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 we should feel this great grace of god for us The Israelites were under the cloud, passed through the sea, all of them. The use of the word baptized points to this analogy. The Israelites baptized into Moses, though that's not an Old Testament reference. It's not anything formal. Paul is borrowing this kind of language to make this link. 
the same way that the Corinthians have been baptized into Christ. Baptized means to be identifying with. That's why we ask people this uh, in baptism. We say, do you believe in the Lord Jesus? And we see buried in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. I'm saying I identify with Jesus. Well, all the Israelites were identified with Moses, especially as they passed through the Red Sea. Paul points out this similarity in order to identify Israel with the Corinthians. Say this is similar so that he could make these applications to the Corinthians and to us. And he strengthens the connection between those two people by referring to the Israelites as their forefathers, as their ancestors. Do you know that the church at Corinth was primarily Gentile? And Paul says to them, our fathers. This is true even though the Corinthians were primarily Gentiles. In Paul's mind, there was a link that existed between the covenant people of God in the Old Testament and believers in the New Testament. I don't know all the nuance there, but I know that Paul believed that Old Testament Israelites were the spiritual ancestors of New Testament believers. He said it plainly in Galatians 3, 7. You need to understand that all of those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. I'm not a literal son of Abraham, but in Christ, I am an inheritor of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Do you understand that? That through Christ, all nations of the world would be blessed. So Paul's drawing these connections. He doesn't just talk about baptism, but he talks about food and drink. The Israelites ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink now i don't mean to say they were non-physical the bread was real the water that came from the rock was real they were not non-physical but they were from the spirit and had spiritual power of encouraging god's people specifically the water that god provided them at least twice from a rock in exodus 17 and numbers 20 a spiritual rock one miraculously provided by the Spirit, empowering the people, accompanying them in the sense that water-giving rocks appeared on at least two occasions. What does that mean? Well, Jesus' disciple John explained that the manna foreshadowed Jesus in John chapter 6. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? I am the bread of life. Here Paul symbolically connects Christ to the water-giving rock by saying, do you see what he said there? The rock was Christ. In the Old Testament, the image of rock frequently appeared as a metaphor closely associated with God. It kind of focused on his life-giving role as the victorious warrior king, the rock, who saved his people from their enemies. And water flowing from a rock to refresh the earth and its inhabitants is also a figure from the Old Testament, clearly as closely associated with God as king. One example is Ezekiel chapter 47. Water flowing from the temple gives life to every creature near it. So as Paul talks about the rock and the water coming from it, this is a picture, a type of Christ. Christ poured forth the life-giving water of salvation on his people. So Israel had this spiritual food and spiritual drink, and that's similar to the Corinthians partaking in what we do here with Christ's body and blood symbolized in the Lord's Supper. The Israelites in the wilderness had lived through the Old Testament, 
And that foreshadows Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Paul describes these events. I just want to stop for a moment here and remind you what I'm trying to paint here for you. The picture of how blessed we are. All, 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 all. The very fact that you can be united with Christ through baptism. The very fact that your faith can be refreshed with Christ through the Lord's Supper. But not just that. The rock was Christ. The greatest blessing. The New Testament tells us how to read the Old Testament. I would be on shakier ground here if I didn't know what uh, Luke wrote in Acts chapter 26. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing, saying nothing, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Moses and the prophets spoke of Jesus. Jesus was having an argument with the Pharisees, no surprise, in John chapter 5. And they were citing Moses to him, and Jesus said to them, You think I'm going to accuse you to the Father? There is somebody who accuses you to the Father. Moses, the one you're quoting. Because if you believe Moses, you would believe me, because Moses wrote of me. And the Luke, the gospel writer, also tells us of Jesus' words to some disciples on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, empty. But they didn't see him. And, he, and Jesus said to them, O oh, you foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, interpreted to them all the things in the Scriptures concerning himself. The Old Testament is the ful fulfilled in the New Testament, and the New Testament explains to us how to read it. I think both Jesus and Moses would love this contemporary song that we have sung here at church. Think about it in this regard. Christ, the true and better Adam, Son of God, Son of Man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded, never sinned. Feel the contrast to Adam. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse. Then rising, crushed the serpent's head. Christ, the true and better Isaac. All this from Moses. Humble son of sacrifice who would climb the fearful mountain there to offer up his life. Laid with faith upon the altar, Father's joy and only Son, their salvation was provided. Oh, what full and boundless love. Christ, the true and better Moses, called to lead a people home, standing bold to earthly powers, God's great glory to be known. With his arms stretched wide to heaven, see the waters part in two. See the veil is torn forever. Cleansed with blood, we pass now through. I mean, the whole Old Testament points to Christ. Christ Jesus is the rock of our salvation. In the same way Israel wandered through the wilderness, it was Christ the rock who was struck by Moses to give them water. Today we look back to when He was crucified for our sin. Jesus was struck by God the Father 
so that we might have living water that brings eternal life through Jesus Christ. He is the living water that wells up to eternal life. Man, we're blessed. It's so rich. And I had to do that to get to the, what I would call the cruddy contrast. Verse 5. Remember the all, 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 all? What do you think I'm looking for here as I read verse 5? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most. Now there's a sad verse, huh? All of them got all of these blessings. Paul went out of his way to talk about all, 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 and then now, but sorry, with most of them, God was not pleased. And here's where everything takes a turn. And Paul begins to address his chief concern. Five times in four verses, Paul had mentioned that all the Israelites shared these common experiences. They were all joined together in the experience of God's grace. Despite the experience of grace from God, enjoyed by all of them, God was not pleased with most of them. Like I said, it's a very sad verse. And as a result, many of them died in the desert, and they were not permitted to enter the promised land. And Paul mentions this to draw attention to a similar possibility within the Corinthian church. Everyone in the Corinthian church had begun a spiritual journey in Christ. I hope that everyone here has begun a spiritual journey in Christ. And everyone had participated in the baptism and in the Lord's Supper. But all of these great spiritual experiences did not guarantee that any of them would complete the journey and receive eternal life. You see verse 6? Now these things took place as examples for us. So if number one, point number one was, uh, I don't even know if I said that, and I even highlighted it in yellow, Amber. I'm so sorry, i just failing up here. Um, where is point one? Have we really covered that much ground already? We sure have. Was seeing God's goodness in verses one through five. Point two is to learn from their sinfulness in verses six through ten. We want to learn from their sinfulness. These things took place as examples for us. These events of Israel's exodus continue to serve as examples. Perhaps not types in this case, but they are examples. And we're given five commands. I'll give them to you and then I'll talk about each one individually. You can see them there. Number one, don't desire evil things. Number two, don't be idolaters. Number three, don't be sexually immoral. Number four, don't put Christ to the test. And number five, don't grumble against God. He gives five very specific, non-negotiable, clear instructions, warnings. Five times Paul warns the Corinthians against acting as they did. Five times he shows how Israel experiences under Moses provided negative examples of Christian behavior. And each of these examples draw attention to the specific aspect of Paul's main concern in the passage. Remember the main concern? Meat sacrificed to idols, idol worship. This is still in that whole vein. All right, number one, don't desire evil things. We've got to move kind of quickly here. That seems kind of straightforward, doesn't it? Makes sense. Don't desire evil things. You know the expression, easier said than done? I do too. 
So the Corinthians are to avoid setting their hearts on evil things. This terminology occurs twice in the Old Testament. Once in Numbers 11, once in Proverbs 1. Probably Paul's alluding to Numbers 11, verses 4 through 6, where the Israelites valued Egypt's food above loyalty to God. I talked about that in my summary there. Why couldn't we stay in Egypt? They had onions and garlic. I do like onions and garlic. They valued Egypt's food above loyalty to God. Israel committed so many sins that all but two of the adults who originally left Egypt died in the wilderness. Even Moses himself was not allowed to enter the promised land. Now in general, Paul meant these examples to warn the Corinthians of the conditional nature of God's blessings. If they fail to obey God, if they continue to abuse one another, God might judge them in the same way he had judged Israel. If you think that sounds odd, you should think about the next chapter. God had already pronounced this judgment on some of the Corinthians for some of the improper ways that they had behaved around the Lord's Supper. We read that passage from time to time. Some of you have fallen asleep because of the way that you have been conducting yourself around the body of Christ. Paul wanted the Corinthians not to allow their desire for meat sacrificed to idols to override their loyalty to God. That's the very narrow application to them. Boy, to us, it's kind of a catch-all, isn't it? Don't desire evil things. In my counseling training, I've learned people do what they do because they want what they want. James chapter 4 talks to us about how we want something and can't get it so we kill or we murder and we slander a great question to ask yourself all the time when you are conflicted in your spiritual life is what am i wanting and do i want something more than i want to please god do i want to please my wife more than i want to please god do i want my wife's approval more than i want to please god do i want money more than i want to please god do i want peace more than i want to please god do i want sleep more than i want to please god Those would be the more benign examples. Most of those things aren't necessarily things we would even call evil, are they? Don't crave evil things. You're going to have to do a little work, and the Spirit of God's going to have to do some of that work in your life, because I have nine minutes and 40 seconds left, so we're going to keep moving here. But I pray that God's Spirit does strike your heart appropriately through this section here. Secondly, in chapter 10, verse 7, Paul warns believers not to be idolaters as some of them were. If you want to read some of these stories, I'm continuing to just cite references, not read for sake of time, but here he has in mind the specific events of Exodus 32, and he quotes it to make his point. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments, Israel again begins to indulge in pagan revelry before the golden calf, which evidently includes pagan cultic meals, like those in 1 Corinthians 8, in pagan temples, And because of this idolatry, God nearly destroyed the entire nation of Israel. As it was, he had 3,000 men put to death in Exodus chapter 32. Paul warns the Corinthians to take this temptation against idolatrous eating very seriously. Again, quickly, John Calvin said that our human hearts are factories of idols. Here in America, it's so much more subtle and insidious. We don't put up 
idols and worship them. We do it in here. And so it's harder to mine out sometimes. Don't be idolaters. Don't love anything more than God. Don't worship anything more than God. The third example, Paul warns against sexual immorality, referring to the time when 23,000 Israelites died after engaging uh, in a festival at Baal Peor and involving themselves in sexual fertility rituals in Numbers chapter 25 and chapter 31. Numbers 25 corroborates this account. Paul's point is very clear. Many Israelites died because of involvement in pagan fertility rites. Fertility religions believe that the participating in religious prostitution, orgies, brought health, fertility, prosperity, that by engaging in sex you would have more fertility and crops. They think of that imagery of, of uh, blossoming. And the idolatry practiced in Corinth in Paul's day had similar practices. Paul's warning was clear to the Corinthians very narrowly. Eating meat sacrificed to idols may lead to sexual immorality if you're still tied into that cultural allure. And some of the Corinthians were prone to that. And that kind of immorality stirs the wrath of God. And my fear is, the only comment I'll make about that in terms of application, is that we are the frogs in the slowly warming water. And we put up with way more sexual immorality than we should. And we have allowed ourselves to be desensitized in many ways. We watch and celebrate and read and view things we should not. Fourth warning in chapter 10, verse 9, Paul warns the Corinthians, don't test the Lord. Don't test the Lord. And some of them did, and he mentioned snakes, which killed many in Israel. This alludes to Numbers chapter 21, and the people blasphemed God by rejecting his manna. And Paul draws on this parallel because some in Corinth were not satisfied with what God had given them. And as the Israelites before them desired food other than manna, the Corinthians desired meat so much that they would disregard all of their considerations. And God's retribution against the Israelites warned the Corinthians against these practices. Application grumbling. Testing the Lord. Well, and that's number five, too. They kind of go together. The fifth warning in chapter 10, verse 10, is not to grumble. Oh, my, I'm in trouble. Complaining against God and his leaders took place many times in the wilderness. But God again had an, but Paul again had a specific time in mind when the destroying angel killed those who grumbled. Well, there's an interesting thought there, isn't it? I know I'm not taking you back to the text. Nor grumble, as verse 10, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the, you see that's in all cap, the cap, destroyed by the destroyer. Okay. Although the scriptures do not mention a specific time when this occurred that we can cite, similar concepts appear in places in the Old Testament, Exodus 12 and the Passover, the death angel, First Chronicles 21. The rabbis of Paul's day, according to my study, uh, taught that God had a particular angel who destroyed and killed, and Paul seems to agree with that teaching. He may have been referring to Numbers chapter 16 when the people rebelled against Moses and his leadership and thousands died, or maybe Numbers 14. There are a couple of spots there grumbling. If God is sovereign, friends, what does that mean? He's in control of everything right and so when you just silly illustration here to make my point when you get in the wrong line at kroger and it goes slow and you grumble 
and you think you're grumbling at the people in front of you or at the Kroger for not having enough staff or you think you're grumbling just in general because you're put out, who are you really grumbling at? If he's sovereign. Number three, accept God's instruction, verses 11 to 13. And here becomes the most familiar part. We, we, I heard you read it better when we read together, together, verses 12 and 13. I'll read it real quickly. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The Old Testament books, interestingly here, seem to not to be primarily written for the people who first read them. Not primarily written for the people who first read them. God wrote the Old Testament primarily for us as Christians, those on whom the end of the ages has come. That's a great image. We'll come back to that in a minute. Christians live in the last days. We live in the overlap between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. The cross has changed everything. The cross has changed everything. And verse 12 is the logical conclusion of verses 1 through 11. Hopefully you follow. Now listen. Because most of Israel in the wilderness was disqualified from the race, even though God provided in so many ways and delivered them and cared for them and was kind to them, Christians today who think that they can do it on their own, let him who thinks he stands should be far more careful. That type of pride goes before the fall. In fact, for the Corinthians, very narrowly, Christians who would exercise their rights to eat food, sacrifice to an idol in an idol's temple, have missed the point. They must not assume that because they are in Christ, the race is basically over. They must not assume that they do not need to vigilantly exercise self-discipline. They must not assume that there is no way they could be disqualified from the race. They must be careful. They must be vigilant. And in verse 13, Paul provides two reasons why someone is responsible if he or she is disqualified. First, every temptation we experience to idolatry and to turn away from God is common to mankind. Temptations such as craving evil things, idolatry, sexual immorality, testing God, and grumbling are common to every one of us. But he doesn't leave it there. There's another reason why that is true. God is faithful. If we fall, we cannot blame God. The problem is with us. We often read this verse in a very, very positive light, and I love it that way, and I use it in counseling. No temptation is taking you but what's common to man, and God is faithful and will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to stand up under it. Yes and amen. But in the context here, can you also feel the weight? No temptation that takes you is unique. This common demand. 
God's faithful. And he will, with every temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to stand up under it. I think we do well to find it both ways. To find both the warning and the optimism in there. These two reasons both caution and encourage Christians. They, allow, they want us to persevere lest we be disqualified. And they reassure us that God will not allow our uniquely powerful temptation to overwhelm us or to kill us. Others have before, you can too. Others have before, you can too. Earlier in the letter, Paul exalted that God is faithful and that Christ will sustain us to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to invite the praise team back to the uh, platform and we'll prepare for our last song. I almost got it all in. That clock just hit zero. I'm, I'm almost done. 100 years of Israel history in uh, 40 minutes. I'll take my 42 and, and be done. All right. So what do we, I've tried to apply a little bit along the way, but here's a few thoughts. Did you notice there was a past, present, and future kind of motif there in verses 1 through 5? It was all about the past, Israel. And then they were written for our instruction in the present that we might not crave evil things. And then in verses 11, 12, and 13, he talks about the end of the ages and talks about how we're going to handle life in the future. We shouldn't think we stand lest we fall. We should prepare. Not only that, but there's another motif subtly working in this text too, and I didn't use either one of them in the text. I'm using them here in application. All, most, some, you. It's so easy for us to focus on they all were blessed with most God doesn't, isn't pleased. Some died. You know how you get to most is some, 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 some. But you should be faithful. Which group will you fall into? You're part of the all, I promise you. God's wonderful favor and blessing is on you. How will you respond? Just a few thoughts. Number one, we have to learn from the examples given to us in the Bible. We should not repeat the sinful mistakes made here. That seems pretty self-evident, doesn't it? That's a pretty good application. Number two, we should seek the good of our neighbors above our own good. We should not be so stubbornly insistent on our own way, being prideful that we're not caring about the good of our neighbor. We must resist the temptation to engage in idolatrous behavior and practices. Friends, that is, that is the most loaded statement, one sentence I have for you today. It is the most pregnant sentence I have for you today. It means something different to each one of you in your own journey. We must resist the temptation to engage in idolatrous behaviors. We have to fight. And we must actively seek to escape evil. Well, you could guess what I might give you in closing. It's a little quote that all of us say to one another to sound pithy and smart. Those who do not learn the lessons of history are forever doomed to repeat it. We have these examples for us today to learn from. I hope we do. 
Father, put your word down deep in our hearts and may it grow a harvest of righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen.